can you help me finish this sentence? Christianity isn't a religion. It's a... That's what we often tell ourselves. And it's what we often tell other people, especially those who have been turned off by some of the church's sins and mistakes. Religion just doesn't sell like it used to. But despite its popularity, that statement actually sets up a false dichotomy. Of course, God wants a relationship with us. But the only way to have a relationship with God is through religion. Because a relationship is a two-way street. And religion is what teaches us how God wants us to relate to him. So the problem isn't religion. And I suspect our problem with it isn't so much about its spotty history as it is about our desire to be morally autonomous and outside the bounds of any kind of authority that can help us judge between right and wrong. The problem isn't with religion. Religion's the very thing that keeps us in relationship with God. No, the problem is false religion. And the way it can sneak into our true religion right under our noses. There's nothing God despises more than false religion. Parodies of the real thing. He's jealous for our love. He created us for relationship with Him. And when something stands in the way of that all-important purpose, He moves heaven and earth to tear it down. That seems to be what's going on in our Old Testament passage this morning. In each of these three chapters, 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, the longest reading in incarnation history, we see God defeating a form of false religion. And as we look more closely at each of these, I do think we'll be surprised at how some of Israel's ancient mistakes just keep repeating themselves today in us. So three forms of false religion. And we find the first one in chapter 4. Superstition. Our passage begins with a national emergency. Israel is at war with the Philistines. And this threat escalates after Israel loses 4,000 men in the first battle. So, they decide to bring onto the battlefield the Ark of the Covenant, this ornate box that contained the stone tablets of the law, the legal documents that bound God and Israel into covenant relationship with each other. It was the physical symbol of God's presence among them, the embodiment of the Lord's warlike solidarity with Israel. And they bring this thing onto the battlefield. Now, we naturally cringe at this, but maybe for the wrong reasons. We moderns tend to think that the purest form of faith 
is a faith without props. A person of faith, we say, is somebody who pays more attention to heavenly things, to the realm of ideas and forms, than to earthly things like literature and politics and, well, arcs of the covenants. But in the pre-modern world, and really before the philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, faith and things were far more compatible with each other. That's why the older branches of Christianity have more rituals and use more things like candles and vestments and chalices. It's because faith up until very recently within the span of human history, was always seen as inescapably earthy and highly ritualized. All that to say, when the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, it's a religious act. It's an act of faith. And how can it not be? Israel is calling on God to save them. They're remembering his promises to protect them, to be their God, to give them the land he swore to their forefathers. Surely this is true religion. But there's a problem. A big, big problem. Look who's accompanying the ark in verse 4. So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Do you remember Hophni and Phinehas? The priests who only two chapters earlier were reported robbing God of his sacrifices and sleeping with the female servants of the sanctuary. It appears um, that they're not just with the ark, but in the Hebrew, it appears that they're actually the ones carrying the ark. This is well-crafted and sophisticated literature. If it weren't so outrageous, we could stop and admire the irony that these men are carrying into battle the very law of God that they're breaking. It's subtle. It's like a blueberry note in a good cup of coffee. <laughs> Is this not the very essence of superstition? It's this attempt to gain power over the creator's world without paying the price of obedience. It's this quest for all the comfort of divine reality without having any interest in meeting its demands. It's a counterfeit faith with no cross and no cost. And when you bring this kind of faith into a war zone and cash it in for goods and services, it always comes up short. Why? Because faith isn't a mere token. It's a tether to an all-powerful and intensely personal God who must be taken seriously. The only people who take God seriously in this chapter, you know who they are? 
It's the Philistines. They freak out in verses 8 and 9. Help! Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? They're the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when Israel was in the wilderness. Fight as never before, Philistines. If you don't, we'll become the Hebrew slaves just as they have been ours. So stand up like men and fight. And boy, do they fight. Israel is defeated. 30,000 men die on the battlefield, including good riddance, Hophni and Phinehas. And worst of all, the ark of God that housed the very presence of God is captured. Here's the point. God cannot be used by us. And even though we might know that in our minds, it's not hard to end up seeing God in this unweighty way. To think, perhaps unconsciously, that by coming to church each Sunday or by reading the Bible each day, giving a portion of our income, that we're doing our part for God. And in return, we expect God to save us from all our troubles and help us out whenever we need him to make sure we're comfortable and happy and secure and whatever else we're asking him to provide for us. But even though God wants us to rely on him, remember, he's our father. He made us for relationship. Even though he wants us to rely on him and to come to him with all of our problems, we need to remember that ultimately, God is not here for us. We're here for him. We were made in his image. He wasn't made in ours. The world does not revolve around you. Even your world does not revolve around you. God must be at the center. God's glory must be central to your life. And the only way to place God in the center, right where he belongs, is to take him seriously. So that is the first form of false religion, superstition. But when we turn to chapter 5, we see another one, idolatry. And this episode is far more amusing than the last one. If chapter 4 were a tragedy, chapter 5 is a comedy, maybe a dark comedy. After the Philistines capture the ark, they bring it back to their territory and put it in the temple right next to the statue of their chief god, Dagon. And the meaning was obvious. The God of Israel was good, but he wasn't good enough. Dagon had triumphed. From now on, the God of Israel would be a prisoner of war. He would be forced to bring all his powers, which were significant, into the Philistine pantheon and function only at Dagon's pleasure. So it was assumed. Let's pick up at verses 3 and 4, chapter 5. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. 
So they took Dagon and put him in his place. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and hands had broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. So youth family, this would be an appropriate time to say booyah. Um, our youth family is heading off to a summer camp today called Camp Booyah. Um, it's one of the ways we take God seriously. Um, last year, the word was a big hit. I heard everything from Druya to thanks be to God, Alibuya. So let the fun begin. Um, anyway, back to 1 Samuel. There's no other way to see it. Dagon was simply getting the godness kicked out of him. And after two KOs, the Philistines stopped propping him up. God was the victor. Dagon was the loser. Now, whenever we talk about idols and idolatry, we're talking about the false gods, the Dagons, that we keep propping up. Idolatry is such a harsh word. It's judgmental. It indicates that you're worshiping something other than God. Who would possibly admit to that? We say, I don't replace God. He's number one. I don't love money. I don't love power. But how are you measuring that? You see, idols are sneaky. They don't normally advertise themselves as your primary allegiances. They prefer to crawl in through your emotions. So instead of seeing an idol simply as something you worship besides God, what if we made the definition a bit more precise? What if we said, from a more emotional standpoint, that an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that if you lost it, your life would hardly feel worth living. What would our idols look like then? Here's some examples from a pastor named Tim Keller. Power idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others. Comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasure experience or this particular quality of life. Accomplishment idolatry. I only have worth if I'm being recognized by my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. Relationship idolatry. I only have worth if Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Suffering idolatry. Life only has meaning if I am hurting or in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. It's piercing, isn't it? Our idols are everywhere. And what makes them so dangerous is that like a cancer, they can ruin us 
for years without us ever feeling a thing. We say, I don't worship anything but God. But our emotions, our affections say otherwise. And do you know what God does with those idols? He breaks them down. Just like he did to Dagon. He shatters them to pieces. It's a daring act of the most violent love. Because it hurts. Forget the idol. It had no power to begin with. But oh, it had its teeth sunk deeply into you. And when it dies, it's as if it takes a part of you down with it. Has God ever done this to you? We have to be careful here. Not all suffering can be linked with idolatry. But some of it can be. Has God allowed the relationship that meant the world to you to fall apart? Or the career you've always wanted, always dreamed about to be taken away? Or the image that you've always desired to drift slowly out of reach. Will you believe this morning that God is doing this all out of love? That when he throws down an idol that has you in its death grip, he does it so that you won't be thrown down with it. That he knows what's best for you and wants to satisfy you in a way you've never even imagined. It's true. God loves you just like he loved Israel. And yes, he allows you to be defeated for a time. He, he will allow that. But unlike Dagon, He promises to raise you up again, stronger and sturdier than before, if you'll trust him. Well, after the Dagon fiasco, the ark wreaks havoc on the Philistines. And this goes on for about seven months until finally they decide to send it back. It's a long and drawn out process, but ultimately at the end of chapter six, the ark comes home. It returns to Israel, to a village called Beth Shemesh. And yet, just when we think that all is well and everybody lived happily ever after, false religion strikes one last time. This time, in the form of irreverence. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they saw the ark, they were overjoyed. Now jump to verses 19 and 20. Whoa, but the Lord killed 70 men from Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who was able to stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. This is the key moment in the story. Because Dagon falling down before God is hilarious. We love that. But this incident 
takes us by surprise. It shocks us and sobers us. Or else it should. A few people look inside the ark, no doubt, to see if the precious law was still there and intact. And boom, they die. Irreverence. It's when you underestimate the terrifying nuclearity of God. And it leaves them asking this penetrating question. It's a question that gets repeated throughout the whole Bible. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Well, we can name a few drop-offs right, right off the beat. I mean, like, not Dagon, um, not the Philistines, but not even the people of Beth Shemesh, God's own people. What about us? Would any of us even dare to throw our name in that hat? Have we not all acted superstitiously? That is, have we not all used God to get what we really want? What's the difference between us and them? Have we not all given more value to our idols, to our success or to our image or whatever, than to God? We treat this stuff lightly, but we see in the scriptures that God doesn't. Have we not all acted irreverently before God? Not treated him with the respect he deserves? Perhaps a joke here that wasn't quite that funny. Who can stand? Who on earth can possibly stand before this God who deserves and demands perfection. Our passage gives us a few clues. In the book of Deuteronomy, don't go there, but God tells Israel that the curse of false religion for for practicing false religion is exile. But who's exiled in this story? God. That's what the wife of Phineas says at the end of chapter 4. The glory has departed. It literally means the glory has gone into exile. It's what Israel deserved. Like we said a few weeks ago, just read the book of Judges. You won't get through it. They had continually gone after other gods. They had defiled God's sanctuary. They had made a mockery of him to the surrounding nations. And yet, God goes into exile for them. He takes their curse upon himself. But he doesn't just do this for Israel. Because this whole story is a pointer to the cross. Where 1,000 years later, God would experience our judgment in the person of his son. Jesus experienced the judgment of exile. He was cut off from God. In his final moments, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me? Why have you cut me off, exiled me, sent me away? 
And the answer is so that you and I can be welcomed home. It was the only way. How can a little child come to his father if he keeps falling down? He must be carried. And that's what Jesus does for us. And he does it at the greatest cost to himself. In these chapters of 1 Samuel, the defeat of God proves to be the very means of victory. The ark is taken to the temple of Dagon as a tribute to Dagon's superiority. But early on the next morning, which, by the way, is the exact same formula of words that the gospel writers use for the very first Easter Sunday. Early on the next morning, Dagon lies fallen before God. And the defeat of God leads to his victory. It's the same at the cross. The dead body of Jesus was Satan's trophy of victory. But through Christ's death, the power of Satan was broken. And Satan's triumph became his ultimate defeat. Jesus walked victorious out of the tomb. And he brought us with him. Who can stand before this holy God? Only those for whom the glory of God has ceased to be their fear and become their hope in the cross. The cross is what gives religion its truest meaning. Why? Because the cross shows us that the only way we can truly relate to God is in His Son, the true Ark of the Covenant, the ultimate presence of God who is always and forever with us.